tell you what, I'm looking around and seeing all the people who are traveling, and I'm actually feeling sorry for them. Um, is this not a gift of God's grace outside today? I mean, 115 degrees heat index last week, and it's got to what top it, like 77 out there right now? Rainy. So is that not a gift of God's grace? I feel bad for all those people who have to travel, um, you know, but we're here. So let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for the blessing that we have to gather together as your people. Uh, Lord, let us always see that as such a privilege. Uh, Lord, let us never take that for granted, Lord, and we ask that uh, in humility you would do what only you can do in our hearts this morning, and you take your word, which is living and active and more powerful than anything that we can imagine, and we ask that by your spirit you use it to separate our thoughts and our intentions, our motivations and our actions, Lord, and help us to see those things which do not bring glory to you and which do not, do not reconcile with a life that is learning to enjoy grace deeply. We ask that you would do that this morning under the preaching of your word and we would be transformed in the image of your son ever in ever increasing measure that our life would reflect your glory and your character as you've revealed yourself in your word. And your name would get honor in this place as your people go out and live their lives with great joy in front of a world that's desperate for real joy, real meaning. Lord, help us to be your church. Help us to be your people. We ask these things in the name of your son. Amen. As a young boy, I spent probably two weekends a year, every year from the ages of around 10, 11 to about 15, 16 in Fayetteville, North Carolina at Fort Bragg. Um, I wasn't in trouble. I wasn't a bad kid necessarily. Um, But for some reason, the Soccer Association of the State of North Carolina chose to have the state championships every summer, every year at Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where mosquitoes lived and humidity reigned, um, and we would actually play our tournaments on the base in Fort Bragg. They would set up these poles that would be squared off like goals, and for nets, they would use the metal chain link fencing that had the green plastic coating on it, you know? That was actually the goals. And it wouldn't have been so bad except for the perspective that it would give off with green coating, with grass everywhere around. Um, It was really hard to get perspective on the field, and it was just an absolute mess. But being a kid, being a boy especially, ages 11 to 15, we loved spending weekends at Fort Bragg. This Fort Bragg was where they trained the Army Rangers. And so for a young boy to spend two weeks or two, two weekends a year at Fort Bragg watching the Rangers train, watching them run their famous obstacle course, going to the museum that kind of venerated the, the rangers and all that they were. It was the highlight of a boy's year. And, and given my age and my generation, the majority of our dads had served in the military during Vietnam. So we would go to Fort Bragg for these weekends, and there would be great stories of what our dads had been involved in. And there are these guys doing these amazing things all over the place. And as a boy, we all wanted to grow up and be rangers. And we all wanted to go and do what we saw these men do. We were just captivated by their aura, by the ethos of the ranger, by what it meant and, and what it looked like. And it was there as a boy um, in those early years that I was first drawn to and, and, and captivated by the ranger motto, the ranger creed of life and, and code of honor. And I want to read a piece of it to you this morning as we get going. The fifth stanza in the ranger creed says this. It says, energetically, I will meet the enemies of my country. I shall defeat them on the field of battle, for I am better trained 
and will fight with all of my might. Surrender is not a ranger word. And this is what always stuck with us, and this is what you're probably most familiar with. I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy, and under no circumstances will I ever embarrass my country. Unbelievable, isn't it? We were struck by, as boys by this code that these men would live by, and even as a grown man, it's still inspiring. I mean, just this week when I was pulling that up, I read of a story going on right that happened probably two and a half weeks ago over in the Middle East where some rangers had been engaged in a, in a firefight in a battle and they had to move locations in the midst of that thing to come at it a different way. And as they got to their new position in the battle, they realized they had lost a soldier. And looking around trying to figure out how to get back and get him, they realized they couldn't go back the way they came. And so they took two of their Apache helicopters and if you're into military stuff, you'll get this. If you're not, let me explain it. These helicopters can't carry multiple people. The fuselage in these helicopters is so tight with weaponry and mechanics, it usually has one, maybe two pilots. But what they have on the wings are straps where you could strap artillery. And these rangers strap themselves with harnesses to the wings of these Apache helicopters. And in the middle of the night, in the midst of this fight, they swoop back into where they had to move from in the midst of this battle so they could grab this ranger who had been shot and they found when they got there who had been killed in the midst of battle, strap him to the wing of that helicopter and safely get them back to where they had come from because they leave no man behind. Their capacity to live, not for themselves, but for the betterment not only of the country, but of their fellow soldier was unbelievable. And even as a man to this day thinking about it, it's still captures me, but it shouldn't be so startling to us, should it? I mean, no man left behind, every man responsible for his fellow soldier, his fellow believer's well-being. Hebrews chapter 3, it says, see to it, brothers, verse 12, talking to everybody, all of us, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. For we have come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly till the end, the confidence we had at first. See to it, brothers, that none of you suffers under the hardening effects of sin and falls away from the faith. But encourage one another. No, no man left behind. There's something in the maturation process as a heart begins to be gripped by the grace of God and the gospel and begins to understand what it means to enjoy grace deeply. There's something wired into that that begins to produce in a human being a sense of responsibility for the spiritual well-being of others around them. Healthy maturity in the life of a believer should produce this kind of sense of responsibility and care for their brother and their sister. And what Paul is doing in this little book of Titus that we're looking at and what we're going to look at specifically today is a vision for the life of a local church where this sense of responsibility, this healthy sense of care that comes from a life that's learning to enjoy grace is on display throughout the people in the church. He's going to give his boy Titus and us by by default, a look at what a church looks like, a, a snapshot, a, a short vision of what a church looks like when people are learning increasingly to enjoy grace. And that's producing this sense of responsibility in your heart and in your life that begins to compel you to give yourself away for the spiritual well-being of another person. No, no man, no boy, no woman, no sister, no brother left behind. So if you've got your Bibles... Hope you do. 
Open them up to Titus, the book of Titus. If you don't have a Bible uh, and you'd like one, we have Bibles just on the other side of this curtain over here. Please grab one, take it. Uh, They're free. They're our gift to you. Um, You're welcome to look on with somebody else. Uh, If you've got them, open them up to Titus chapter 2. What does this look like when grace begins to produce this responsibility in our hearts and in our lives and we move from being consumers in the church to being providers in the church? When we move from being consumers of spiritual goods and wares to providers who sense a responsibility to care for one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to sacrifice for one another. We're going to get a little snapshot of what that looks like, and he's going to hit everybody. And he's going to start kind of where he left off with the leaders. He's going to start with those that God is calling in particular ways to lead his people in particular ways in serving and in guiding and in shepherding. And he's going to say this, verse 1, chapter 2. But as for you, talking to his boy Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, he just came from finishing talking about what was going on in the church, which is causing this letter to be written where there are some false teachers who have come into the church, and, and they've begun to teach something that's not in accord with the gospel of grace, with the good news of Jesus, and what that produces in a believer's life. And they're beginning to draw people away from the simplicity of the message, simplicity of the gospel, from a trust and an enjoyment of grace to this sense of need to add on to their life and to strap onto their life the burden of particular legalisms and activities that they need to do if they're going to ever have any right standing before God. And Paul is reminding Titus that he's so angry about this, not simply because they're wrong, but because the damage that doctrine is doing. It's destroying whole households. And Paul begins to outline just what these guys are doing, and he comes back to Titus, and he says, listen, as for you, you need to teach what accords with sound doctrine. You need to teach one sound doctrine, Titus, which we've talked about the last couple of weeks. You need to hold firm to the trustworthy news of the gospel message that's been passed down. You need to center all that you do, all that you say, all that you hope in, all that you trust in on the good news of the gospel. But notice in this encouragement, he doesn't simply just say, Titus, teach sound doctrine. He says, Titus, leaders in the church, those who God is raising up in the church, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Leaders are to teach the church what life looks like when it's lived in step with the truth of the gospel message. That's the way Paul says it in Galatians when he tells the story of how back in Antioch, he was eating with the Gentile believers and his boy Peter came to visit him and Peter came to see the new believers and was eating with everybody, eating with, uh, eating with Paul and eating with these Gentile converts. But when James and the friends of James came to town, those guys who were from Jerusalem who who were the former Judaizers who came from the background that Peter came from, when they showed up, all of a sudden Peter separated himself from those Gentile converts and believers and started eating over here with the Jewish brothers. And Paul told the church in Galatians that I went straight up to him to his face. I looked at him in his face and I said, Peter, that is not behavior that is in step with the truth of the gospel. And Paul's telling Titus and the leaders here, he's saying, you need to not only teach sound doctrine, But you need to teach, you need to instruct, you need to encourage, you need to model, you need to correct so that people live not just with an awareness of sound doctrine, but so that their life reflects a heart that is trusting sound doctrine. Because we talked about in the very first week, and you can go back and listen to it, when you understand the good news of grace that comes from Jesus, it changes everything. And as your heart begins to increasingly trust 
and treasure the good news of who Jesus is for you and what he has done, that should produce a different way of living. Grace produces a godly life. Paul says, leaders in the church, you need to teach, not just sound doctrine, but you need to teach what it looks like to live a life that reflects a hope in that sound doctrine. Not just that. He said, you should teach them, encourage them, instruct them what it looks like, but you know how they're best going to catch it, Titus? They're going to catch it best not just when you say it, not just when you stand up in front of them and open up the Bible and and teach them about it, though that's important and though that should be primary when we gather. You know how they're going to catch it, Titus? They're going to catch it from the way you live. So before he peels off into the rest of the church, look at verse 7. He says, leaders, your, your best teaching comes along with a life that displays a trust and a belief in what you're saying. So show yourself, talking to Titus and the leaders, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame. If you were to lay those verses back over the end of chapter one, when Paul describes what was going on in the church that these false teachers were doing, this is what it would look like. I'm not gonna put it on the screen. Just listen, this is what it would look like. The false teachers, Paul said, are unfit for any good, but by his life, Titus is to teach what is good. The false teachers deceive and lie, reject the truth for dishonest gain, but Titus, show integrity. Show integrity in what you teach. The false teachers, they're corrupted. To them, nothing is pure. They're mere talkers, but Titus and leaders in the church show soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Paul said, Titus, their lives deny God. They say one thing, but their life shows something totally different. Titus and the leaders in the church, you live in a way that no one can deny the validity of the gospel or the character of those who preach it. Why? So that any opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Leaders in the church are not only to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine, but their lives are to consistently model what that looks like when it has grabbed a hold of your heart and the evidence of the fruit that it produces in the way that you live your life. You not only teach, but you model. Let me say this really clearly and really quickly when we talk about this. Modeling is an unbelievably vital part of the discipleship process in the life of the church. This is what Paul is going to continue to encourage the rest of the church to do with one another as we keep going through these verses. But let me give you this caveat here before we get too far ahead. As important as modeling is, it has to come from the right motivation, which is why all that Paul has said has been grounded in the aspect of a heart learning to enjoy grace. Because if it does not come from the right motivation, modeling can very easily slide into a manipulation. Modeling can very easily become one believer's effort to get another believer to behave the way they want them to behave or to behave a way they think is better than the way other people behave or to behave in a way that they behave so that they look like they're the ones who can instruct others in how to behave. If the desire to encourage and teach and instruct and correct and and, and model for others a life that enjoys grace is growing in your heart as it should be, careful to make sure that it's the grace of God that's grounding that and compelling that. Take care to make sure that it's the grace of God that's compelling your desire to see others encouraged in the grace of God and not a desire to manipulate others to get them to behave in a way you want them to behave. 
Modeling can very, very easily slip into a form of spiritual manipulation, and it is evil. And it happens like that. That's why we must always take care to watch our life, watch our doctrine. That's why we talk about that so much. And Paul says it's this snapshot, 30,000 square feet, a church that is learning to enjoy grace. You need leaders that are teaching what it looks like to live a life that enjoys grace. And they're modeling what that looks like for others. But then he moves on. He's going to get everybody else. So the first thing we're going to look at is what it looks like, a snapshot of what it looks like for a church to have and cultivate men who are enjoying grace. And, and I think we might use Titus. And you, you tell me, has it been helpful so far? You can say no. You can shake your head no. I mean, if it's been helpful so far, what we might do, and I was thinking about this as I was praying this week, what we might do is, is kind of use Titus as a springboard in the summer to kind of hit on some of these things that, that come up and that are important. So he's going to give us a snapshot of what a healthy church is to look like, what, what a church that's cultivating men and women who enjoy grace looks like. But what we might do is we might take the next couple of weeks to talk particularly about what it looks like when the, the gospel of grace cultivates the heart of a man and, and what it looks like in Scripture when, when grace cultivates the heart of a woman so we can maybe f- pull this out and tease this out a little bit more. Is that cool? So he's going to give us a snapshot this morning, and we're just going to catch a vision. What, what could it look like? What, what should it look like? What, what are we aiming for in this? What's to be our direction in this whole thing? And, and Titus says this. Here's his vision for, for men in a church that's enjoying grace. Look at verse 2. Older men, they're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, now technically, when he's saying older men here, he is meaning chronology. He is meaning in age, men who are generally older than the rest of the men there. But you kind of have to look around at your settings and look around at your surroundings and see what that's actually like. And and I want to commend something to you and encourage you in something as you look around at the church, even in days like this in the summer when so many who call this home are gone. When you look around and you listen to what Paul is encouraging Titus in and all of these things, you'll see the diversity that Paul expects to be there in the church is actually replicated here in this church. Paul doesn't say, Titus, you need to go out and get men to come to church. You need to get older ones. Then you need to get younger ones. And then you need to go find some older women. And you need to do this to get the older women to come and, and get the men over here to look this way so that the women will come because they want to be where the men are and, and do this and do that. He just says, look, there's going to be older men. You need to get them and tell them this. There should be older women. There should be younger men and younger women. He just assumes that as the gospel goes forward, and it begins to cultivate people's hearts, and their sense of responsibility grows, they're confessing that thing that has so changed them that there would be this kind of diversity amongst peoples in the church. And I want you to be encouraged that that's happening here. We don't have to structure anything or manipulate anything we do to try to get a particular demographic in here so that we can say the gospel is possible for them. It, they're here. So he says older men, older saints, more chronologically mature, Ultimately, your heart, your life, as it's lived out in front of others, should exemplify to the most part that of what we talked about a couple weeks ago is characteristic of an elder in the church, a leader in the church. Those same traits, those same characteristics, short of the requirement that you've got to be able to teach. And and let me just tell you, because we talked for the last couple of weeks about what this looks like, and I don't want to harp on it too much this morning, because we may come back to it next week and I'll do it again. This is so important for us to hear. 
In a day and age like ours where the sense of responsibility tends to get put off decade after decade after decade, where prolonged adolescence is the name of the game, when all it takes is a short southwest trip to Vegas to see that just being chronologically older by age doesn't make you mature in any way, shape, form, or fashion. We need to hear the encouragement of the scriptures into what is to mark the life of a man who has grown to enjoy grace and how that's to reflect in his life. Paul says, older men, those of you who have lived, who have been through things, and who have tasted the grace of God, you are to learn, pursue, and demonstrate how the gospel produces in you a sober-mindedness. I mean, you are to demonstrate in your life an awareness, a self-awareness of who you are, where you're strong and where you're weak, what temptations continue to befall you, what things you've gained victory over, what idols you have defeated in your heart through the grace of the gospel. You are to have a sober-mindedness about who you are. If there's anything young men are confused about, it's about who they are, who they're supposed to be, what should they do, uh, what makes me strong, what makes me weak, what do I find? If there's anything that marks young men, it's confusion. The older men are supposed to have grown through that. The gospel is supposed to have rooted itself deeply in your heart that your sense of security, your sense of self-awareness, your sense of identity and purpose is coming from that. You've defeated those confusions that so mark younger men. Are you sober-minded? Do you have an accurate self-assessment? Is the gospel cultivating a life that's dignified? Some of your translations will say worthy of respect. Are you enjoying grace to such a degree that when you go and, and live your life and the life in the neighborhood, if you're no longer there anymore, that you generally get the respect of people simply because of who you are? Is there simply a dignity and a life lived before others that naturally gains and commands the respect of others just for the way that you live? It should be happening. Is the gospel cultivating Self-control. Self-control. Because if the Holy Spirit in, in you, coupled with a deepening understanding of the grace of God in you, is not producing in you his fruit of self-control, no one else can give it to you. If you can't control yourself, nobody else will. Older men, is the gospel cultivating this in your heart? Would you say this is characteristic of, of who you are? Paul says, this is, to what you're, this is what you're to be reflecting, how you're to look in the eyes of others, being sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Are you sound in faith? What's your relationship with God like? What's the vertical relationship with God like between you and him? Are you deepening your faith in him and your trust in him? Is he ever increasingly defining who you are and how you understand yourself? Is that security and that assurance growing beyond the, the struggles that are usually marking those younger men? What's your relationship with God like? Is it growing? Are you sound in that faith? Is that producing relationships on the horizontal level with other people that are marked by love? Is that humility that's being born out of your relationship with God characterizing your relationship with others? Are you there to meet the needs of others, serve others? Have you grown past putting your own selfish agenda in front of the relationships you have with other people? Are you there to love and serve and encourage? Are you sound in faith? Are you sound in love and endurance? Are 
Has the gospel cultivated in you through the life that you've lived and the things that you've seen and the way you've seen God change you and show up produced a steadfastness or an insurance, an endurance in your heart? The cheeky thing about this, if you were to read it grammatically, there's a preposition in there that doesn't show up in English that actually allows you to read this saying that you are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled, and that comes from a man who's sound in faith, sound in love and endurance. Those traits produced by the Holy Spirit's work in your life and a steadily increasing, deepening hope and faith in the gospel of grace produces the very things that you're supposed to be marked by. Is this you, older men? Maturity here is marked through the lens of a man that's committed in endurance to enjoy the grace of God and letting that grace shape his identity and security and therefore committed with endurance to the relationships with others for the sake of God's grace in their life. That's what the vision for the older man in the church is supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to be. That then is supposed to play out in a growing sense of responsibility for the younger men who are around. For the younger men who are coming behind you still so confused about what all those things are to be. And Paul says in verse 6, for these younger guys, likewise, teach them what life looks like, lived according to sound doctrine, likewise, and urge them to be self-controlled. You'll see as we go through, the lists aren't comprehensive. They're going to be dealing in particular with things that were going on in Crete, but they're things that we deal with here. He says, older men, all those things that you're to be learning, all those things you're to be marked by, all those things that the gospel is to produce in your heart, likewise, teach these younger guys what life looks like lived according to sound doctrine, what it's produced in you, but make sure you teach them self-control. Let me say this one thing, because we talked about self-control a lot for the last few weeks. Be encouraged that he says this, because what this means is that for you young guys, for the young guys that are in here, self-control is possible. I mean, if there's one thing that we probably generally look at my generation and down and go, wow, one thing missing, it's probably self-control. But Paul's saying clearly here, self-control is possible. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. What would it look like in a church to be full of young men whose lives are not marked by the, by the ethos, by the air of the age that tells them, go out and get everything that you can, pursue every indulgence that you can get, do all that you can do until you get to the age where you've got to get a stable job and you'll end up getting married and then you'll have kids and that'll ruin the rest of your life because you won't be able to go out and do what you want to do anymore or you'll operate your family once you have them in such a way that you can still do what you want to do. It doesn't take away from your time and your priorities and you don't love and lead and serve your families. Don't, we don't need young men with that. Paul says, older men, in your maturity, you're to be gaining a sense of responsibility for the well-being of the spiritual well-being of others in your church, and you need to teach these young men. Teach these young men self-control. What would it look like to have a church full of young men marked with the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that comes from God and the Holy Spirit and the self-control to pursue a, a life that honors God from the time they come in here? That's what it's to look like. That's a snapshot. That's what the gospel is producing in the life of a church when it becomes central. We must, let me summarize Paul, we must encourage Christ-likeness in one another. Older men, younger men, we must encourage Christ-likeness in one another. Older men are to deliberately invest in younger men, encouraging their spiritual growth, encouraging a love and a trust and a surrender to God's word, 
encouraging a humility and a sacrifice and a service in other people's lives. Encourage men to be strong, to be self-sacrificial, to be servant leaders in the church and servant leaders in their home. Men are called to look like Christ. And older men need to sense the responsibility for helping the younger men see that shaped and formed in their life. Are there any older men in here by age or spiritual maturity that grow, are growing in any sense of responsibility in this? This is what the gospel is to produce in you. Men are to take care of the spiritual well-being of one another. No man left behind. But he's not done. He's not just picking on men. I can pick on men. We'll pick on men next week. He says there's a vision, there's a snapshot of what this looks like when it continues to be played out, when teaching and modeling continues to play itself out in the life of the church. And he gives us a little snapshot of what it looks like for women, for women in the church who are growing to enjoy grace, whose souls are being cultivated to enjoy grace. I'm looking at it. I'll give you time. Look at verse three. Paul says, older women, likewise, likewise, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Likewise, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. Again, like the list we saw previously and the ones we're still going to see, it's not comprehensive. Paul is dealing with particular issues that are going on in the life of this church, but issues that go on here too. Issues that are not one degree removed from the same things we face here. So in accordance with sound doctrine, in accordance with a heart that's continuing to deepen and increase its capacity to enjoy grace, our more chronologically mature ladies are to display a reverence that flows from a heart that enjoys grace. Now this word reverence is a killer word. When you go look at where this word reverence come from, comes from, it actually comes from the idea of being temple-like. Our mature ladies are to display in their lives, coming from a heart that is increasing its capacity to enjoy grace, a demeanor that is temple-like, that sees all of their God-given opportunities in life as something they do before him to see all of their life and all of their relationships and all of their opportunities of service and all of the things that they do as done before the face of God. There's to be a reverence that's cultivated. They're to have been around for a while. They've gone through things. Just imagine, just don't read it so coldly. Imagine first century, second century, third century Greco-Roman world. Take yourself away from where you are now and imagine what these women have been through. Imagine the children they've lost in childbirth. Imagine the children they've probably lost in sickness. Imagine the, the sons and the husbands they may have lost in battle somewhere. Imagine the family they had lost in conquest and in slavery. Imagine all the things they've probably gone through. And Paul says this, as the gospel cultivates your soul, as you increasingly learn to enjoy the grace of God, may you begin to see that all that you have gone through and all that you do is done before the very face of God himself. And knowing what you know now about who he is and how he's taking you through what you have lived through and are going through, you should along with that be, be past so many of the things that mark the struggles of the younger women around you. You should have grown behind and left behind the gossip, the slander, the malicious talking. It wasn't uncommon in the first century as it's just not uncommon in the 21st century. 
for these younger women to spend the time that they have gathering together, communing together in a house, and spending the time they have together talking about other people. Talking about what other people have, what other people don't have, what they said, what they didn't say, what they went through, what they didn't go through. Gossip is no more a 21st century invention than it was a first century invention. And Paul says these older women, out of this reverence that's grown in their heart, there should be past. I mean, they've got to put that stuff behind them already. They've seen the foolishness and the fallacy that comes with it. They're not marked by this kind of talk anymore, and they've moved past and the indulgence and the slavery to, to wine and all the other indulgences that so capture our hearts when we're looking for some kind of escape from something. You're past grabbing the bottle and pouring the cup and escaping the frustration of your kids or escaping the frustration of your job or escaping the frustration of your husband who doesn't listen. You're not going to the gym to get the identity you're looking for anymore. You're not going to the bottle to get the comfort anymore. You're not going to whatever indulgence it was that so captured your heart when you were looking for something you weren't getting from someone else. You've grown past that. They've put it past them. Their hearts have been cultivated by the grace of God and and they've been matured into a reverent temple-like woman. And these are ladies whose lives reflect a battle with and a victory over the idols and struggles of the day. Their lives don't damage the credibility of the gospel. This is what older women are to be maturing into. And then Paul does something really interesting with them. He, he clarifies something that's really powerful, and you'll miss it if you don't, if you don't catch it. You, you'll miss it. He says the older women are to teach what is good. And we'll go on to what they teach, but you've got to stop right there and see what he just said. Paul just said a man... Titus, elders, leaders, are to teach older women, model for older women, encourage older women in how they grow in maturity in Christ so that they could then teach other people. A man just told a woman that he is going to teach her so that she can go teach. Unbelievable. Would have been staggering to those people who grew up in that time and heard that. Men did not do that. They did not demean their time to go and teach women so that they could release women to teach other people. Don't don't miss what he just said here. He just took a shot at some of the most sacred social barriers that were going on at the time. And he said, these women, these older women, these maturing women are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, busy at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Two omissions in that statement that some of you are probably noticing. First omission in that statement is that Paul did not instruct Titus or the elders of the church to teach these younger women. Paul did not say like he did to Titus to teach the older men to encourage the older men to teach the younger men, for him to teach the younger men to model the older men, for him to teach the older women so that they could go and teach the younger women. He did not say, Titus and leaders, go teach these younger women. Two probable and healthy reasons why. One, Paul was continuing in his instruction to Titus and his instruction to the churches that you see in all of his letters in the New Testament to elevate the role of the woman's husband and his role of leading the home and caring for the home and pastoring the home, the very thing we talked about last week. Titus, Paul was very careful to not encourage Titus and the leaders of the church to undermine the responsibility and the authority that the man has in his home to take responsibility for his family. 
If Paul could encourage Titus and the leaders to constantly go and teach the younger women whose husbands may not be doing what they're supposed to be doing and not caring for their families where they're supposed to be caring for them and currying the trust, the ear, the respect of these younger women, it could put them and Titus and other leaders in a very dangerous place. When dependency is cultivated between a younger man like Titus or even an older man as an older pastor or an older leader who tends to continually give his ear to another woman who's struggling feeling heard, struggling feeling loved, struggling feeling served, struggling feeling respected, and a leader doesn't take precautions and doesn't take care to recognize the dependency that he's creating and cultivating this relationship, even with good intention, he gets himself into a very, very dangerous position. And so one of the things that Paul was doing in this and, and not encouraging Titus to go and to directly teach these younger women and to model for these younger women what their life is to look like is because he wanted to not demean the responsibility that their husband has so that he can continue to teach and encourage the men to help this man. But it also keeps leaders and other people from being in very difficult situations, very unsavory situations. You know, we, we go to particular lengths here to make sure that we don't find ourselves in too many of those situations. We, we certainly counsel women and, and we'll certainly instruct and, and encourage women, but generally, even when it comes to me, generally, I'll work to limit the number of times I'll do that. I'll work to limit the number of times that I meet individually one-on-one with any particular woman before finding another woman who can come alongside and maybe help out and encourage and direct before actually involving, even from the first time, their husband if they're married to find out where he is in all this and what's going on here and, and what his role is in all of this. We will deliberately limit the number of times we'll do that so that we don't create a dependency that could in any way, shape, form, or fashion be seen as unhealthy or, or ever be put to the test in front of people and be seen as, as not taking care to go above and beyond and above reproach in how we handle our relationships with people. Whenever we have the opportunity, we involve my wife or we involve our wives, and when it's possible to counsel, it's because frankly, frankly, they're better at it. One commentator, he said this, he said, the ministry of our churches is woefully incomplete without women. Our churches need women who love gutsy theology, gritty service, and the rigors of gospel counseling. This is especially so because there are some situations, particularly in ministering to other women, in which women are frankly generally far more effective than men. And I can't tell you how true that is. I can't tell you how true that statement is. And the number of times that I have sat down with my wife with another woman or another couple and been absolutely amazed at the way in which my wife could take a particular reality of the gospel and so accurately apply it to what another woman was struggling with in a way that I could no more understand and foresee. That by not following the encouragement that Paul is giving Titus, we actually end up doing a disservice to the women in the church by thinking that we can simply counsel, understand, and instruct and not try to do the best that we can to connect older maturing women with younger women who are struggling with particular things. So one omission that's generally there is Paul doesn't tell Titus to teach these younger women because he instructs Titus to teach the older women so that they can more effectively do that very thing that he's probably not equipped to do. The other thing that's not there, that gets pointed out a lot, is that when you listen to what he encourages these older women to teach these younger women, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of room in there for women who aren't married and women who have kids. 
most of his instruction here to Titus is to encourage these older women to teach these younger women particular things really in relationship to their homes. And here's what you've got to see. The list is not comprehensive. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says plenty to instruct and encourage women who are not married. But at the particular station that was going, thing that was going on in Crete, the particular struggles that were going on, he was dealing with households that were being damaged by this false doctrine. And here's the thing. You've got to understand this when you read your Bibles and you, and you go through this. In this time, in the first century, households were essential to economics. People were married at very young ages, and the majority of the time, it was arranged. To find a, a young woman in the church who wasn't married really just didn't happen. It was a completely different culture. If she was there, she was probably a widow, and she falls under the direction and the care and the concern and the instructions that Paul gives in other places to widows. So, Though he's not speaking directly in some things that he says to women here who aren't married, he's speaking in a different way to you. And elsewhere in the New Testament, throughout the letters that he's written, there are lots of instruction to women, married and unmarried. So those are the two kind of particular omissions that are in this that tend to get brought up. But now let's actually see what he says. Why does Paul want these maturing older women to teach these things to the younger women? And I'll I'll just say it broadly, because they're hard to do. He wants these older women to teach these younger women these things because doing these things is really hard. Loving your children consistently, in a nurturing, loving, patient way, loving your husband intentionally and consistently, it's hard. It's not an easy thing to do. And so he has particular instruction to these women to help encourage these younger women because it can be hard to love your husband and your kids. That's a very difficult ministry. One woman commentating on this passage said, in fact, it can be easier to minister outside of your home than it can inside of your home if you're a woman. She said, what's more rewarding to you? Planning an event for 20 to 200 women that all come together and, and do whatever you've planned or plan an indoor picnic with your preschoolers and your toddlers on a rainy day? Which one seems more fulfilling and which one seems more difficult? Is it harder to plan the picnic because the rewards are more immediate or because the rewards of the other are more immediate and the demands on you aren't so steady? He encourages these older women to encourage these younger women because loving their families is, it's hard work. If you're married and have kids, you know what he's saying. I can be a difficult one to love very often. My kids can be very difficult sometimes to love. And the encouragement of scripture to my wife is to love me and to love our kids consistently. In that day, in the first century, to find a woman who truly loved her husband and kids was extraordinary. In a time of arranged marriages, in a time of when people met each other the day that they generally got married, to find a woman who genuinely loved her husband and genuinely loved her kids apart from the grace of God through the gospel was an amazing thing. They were actually called extraordinary. But this is the very thing that women are called to do because of the gospel, because of grace cultivating their hearts. And there's a couple other things that he said in here that I'm sure most of you have noticed and 
being a faithful and, and brave creature, I uh, will continue forward. Two things that probably get noticed most often. First thing he said, or one thing he said in there, was he said for these older women to teach these younger women how to be submissive and to encourage them to be submissive to their own husbands. Notice he said own husband. In that day and age, women were in a culture where they were felt to be inferior and demanded to be submissive to all men. It didn't have to be your husband. It would be any man. Any man walking around, doing anything, anywhere, had superiority over you. And Paul said, no. Encourage them to be submissive to their own husbands. Men do not have the right to, to direct the affairs of any other woman than their wife. Men do not have authority over every woman, period. And one thing he's saying here, and we'll just say, I'll be honest, go and you look up the word submissive. Everybody wants to know what that word means. What did he really mean? English, we have no words to translate what the Greek word actually is. What did it mean? It couldn't mean submissive. I'll tell you exactly what the word means when you go and look it up. You study all the etymology of it. Go figure out where the root word is. Go figure out where it all came from. I'll tell you exactly what the word submissive means. It means submissive. It means submissive. There's not a trick there. We can, we can recreate what we want it to say. We can make it sound however we want it to sound. But Paul doesn't elaborate on what that word means. You know why? Because he's expecting the older women to teach younger women what it means and what it looks like. So Paul doesn't elaborate on what this actually means because he's expecting these women to help encourage and teach these younger women. But we don't have that luxury when I'm talking here, so I'm going to have to explain it a little bit to you. And one thing I want you to say, just so that you don't, don't allow any temptation to come into your head to think this at all, this word submissive does not give a husband the right to treat a wife like a doormat. You do not have the right to treat your wife like a doormat. Submissive does not mean she must be at your beck and call like your dog. You don't have to have certain calls that mean certain things in your house, and she just knows what to do when you go and do it. Submissive does not mean you get to treat your wife like a doormat. Ephesians 5 says that husband are to love their wives the way that Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Your love, we talked about last week. We'll talk about it next week because so much of the problem with understanding this word comes from men. Men ruin this. We do. It's really not a difficult concept if it weren't for us. So we'll talk about it more next week. But men are to love their wives the way that Christ has loved the church sacrificially serving, giving up themselves for their wives, giving up themselves for their kids, taking the responsibility and the initiative to set a trajectory for their home to say, this is what God is calling our home to be, where God is calling us to do, and I'm gonna give myself up for the sake of God in this home that he might be conformed in you and in our kids. That's what a husband's service is supposed to look like before his wife. And Paul says a wife is then supposed to submit to that. She's supposed to take all the gifts that God has given her all the talents, all the intelligence, all the nurturing, all the love, all the ways that he's wired her, and she's to take those things along with the trajectory and the service that her husband is providing and attach those things there to further along the mission of that home. That's what it looks like. It's no different than the church where the leaders in the church who are given the responsibility over the church, who, who don't have any particular you know, special place because of their role. The leaders are just given the responsibility. So when God looks down at the church and calls the church into account, it's going to be the pastors who stand before him to give account for your souls. So God has said that the men are to be responsible for their homes. And so when the home goes wrong, God looks at the man and says, what did you do wrong? 
So the husband has this responsibility, just as the leaders in the church have this responsibility in the church to take all the gifts and all the talents and all that God has put in that church and so line it up and orchestrate it in such a way that together the church moves forward for the purposes of God. That's what the home looks like. And all Paul's saying is that these women are supposed to have a heart that's wired to looking and serving and taking what God has given them and serving alongside their husbands to further the direction of the, of the home. That's what he's saying here. It's supposed to look like the church. But we'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks because I know you've got mad questions about that. The other thing that always comes up, and we'll say it just because it always comes up here, and this is a proof text for a lot of people's arguments on both sides of a coin. Paul says these older women are to teach these younger women to what? Be busy where? At home. How many of you love that one? I was waiting for you to do Titus 2. Come on, tell us what that means. Listen, you cannot take this passage and import the modern debate about what a woman's career is to look like, and you can't import that into this passage. You can't. That's not what he was talking about. Paul, in no way, shape, form, or fashion, had in his mind the 21st century career woman. He was not talking about that. That is not the way the world operated in the first century. The problem that was going on in Crete that he's addressing is that these women were at home because that was the way that their life lived. And they were at home neglecting their husbands, neglecting their kids, gathering together, drinking together, and gossiping. Desperate housewives was a first century issue, not a 21st century issue. So you can't import the modern debate about women's roles in the workplace and in the home into this one passage. You can't do it. Now, he's got lots to say about that, but you can't do that here. That's not what he's talking about. The emphasis isn't solely on the location of the wife's work, but being productive in the normal occupations that are required of her of being a wife and a mom. Very different thing. Is her heart, is her heart content? And is her heart oriented towards her husband and her kids? It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Let me say this, women can leave their home in more ways than just a job. Women can leave their home and neglect their husbands, neglect their families, neglect the privilege of, that they have as being a wife and a mom in more ways than getting a job. Phone calls, internet, emails, whatever you can occupy yourself with. You can neglect it more than just going and getting a job, so don't make it so simple about that. That's not what he's talking about. Listen to this. Janie Ortland, she is a, uh, a pastor's wife in, in Nashville. She has a master's in education, um, and she wrote multiple curriculums for different schools. Um, she has this to say about this passage, and I, I want you to hear this. Again, listen to an older woman. She said, ministry in the home is an unbelievable privilege, and what it means is that a woman is to be all there. It means rejoicing that you get to show your kids how to pedal a tricycle, how to make their bed, how to build good memories, how to share their toys with others. You serve your family and ultimately your heavenly father by helping your child do that puzzle for the 17th time, by washing their dirty hands, by planting a little garden for them, by acting out Bible stories and praying together, and by preparing for their dad's return as the highlight of their day. What's your alternative? Proverbs 29 says that a child left to himself disgraces his mother. Remember this, ladies. 
you have the privilege of passing on to young hearts a sense of God. Should you feel guilty for that? As you let your children experience the intimacy, nearness, and availability in their earliest years with you, you can point them to find those soul necessities in Jesus, their Savior, as they grow. And then you have the delight of sending them out with a light in their souls to bless a darkened world. Older women, knowing what they know, living through what they've been through, tasting the grace of God the way that they have, have been encouraged by Paul to teach and to model for these younger women what it means to love their husbands, to love their kids, to find the privilege and the treasure that it is to be a mom and to be a wife, to encourage them through the grace of God for their heart to be oriented in that way, to find the pleasure that comes from God and the ministry that they've been given in this stage of their life. And let me, like I did a little while ago, commend this to you. We are unbelievably privileged and blessed here to have women like this. You don't find many women like this in churches our age. We're barely two years old. Barely two years old. And I am not an old man. The majority of times when churches start and you've got a guy like me who's starting the church, you end up having guys who look like me and who are a lot younger. And we are blessed by God to not only have older men who are mature in the faith, but we're blessed by God to have these older women who have been there, have done that, and know the grace of God in all of it. And I want to commend to you some of these women. We are so top-heavy on women who have kids that are nursery to early elementary. We get really thin at about mid-late elementary on. Like last year, we had 17 babies, the majority of them first-time moms. We have so many families, young women, young dads in this early stage of life that God has not left us to ourselves, but has graced us with men and with women who have raised unbelievably wonderful kids, whose marriages have gone through hell and back and have tasted the grace of God in the midst of it. I want to commend to all the young men and young women some of these families. Look around and you can find them. I want to encourage some of these older women Sense your responsibility to care for these younger women. We've got a ton of them. Begin to sense your responsibility to care for them and and offer yourself up to them. We've got groups of these young moms who are starting to gather around the city. What if one of our older moms who's grown in this faith and has been there and done that with their kids and, and grown through the struggles in their marriage with their husbands and now reflects such a grace in their marriage were to sit in on some of those groups to help encourage and nurture to help teach. This is the grace that God's given us in this church, and we shouldn't take it for granted. It's a blessing. And in in the next couple of weeks, we'll we'll unpack what this looks like more fully for a woman to enjoy grace and and what that looks like. But this is just a snapshot of what it's to look like as that responsibility is played out in the life of the church. And then he he hits a third group, and we'll, we'll go through this third group because why not talk about something uncomfortable after we've talked about submission and being busy at home? Verse 9. Slaves, they're to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our Savior. You've got to feel a bit uncomfortable when you read that. I mean, you do. Just acknowledge that. You read that, you've got to feel a bit uncomfortable. But slavery was taken for granted in the first century. The the thought of it not existing in the first century it wasn't even a thought that had entered into somebody's brain. 
But you also have to understand that when they talk about slavery in the first century, it's not the same thing that we talk about when we talk about slavery in the beginning of our nation's history. This slavery in the first century wasn't racial. In fact, under the Greco-Roman Empire, the African nations actually had slaves. The way slaves were, were gathered, the way slaves were, grain, were gained, was primarily through conquest. When one land would take over another land or one king would conquer another king, they would take the majority of their men, the majority of their soldiers, the majority of their land that weren't dead from the conquest, and they'd take them into slavery. But here's one of the things you've got to see. In, in an age of absolute illiteracy for the most part, most of the time, the majority of teachers in the first century in the Greco-Roman Empire were slaves. They were some of the most literate, educated people around. In fact, there are stories of written stories documented throughout history of men who actually sold themselves into slavery to a wealthy family. Because if they sold themselves into slavery with a wealthy family, they could actually, like Joseph, rise to a position of power with that wealthy family. They could actually be given dominion over much of what that wealthy family owned. They'd be educated. They, they were often doctors. They were teachers. They would rise to a position with this family. And then what they would do when they had that money, they'd just buy their freedom back. And they'd walk out into society with all the education, all the money, all that they had earned, and the association of having been with this family. So in the first century, we're not talking about racial slavery. We're not talking about human chattel. We're not talking about the things that so filter our minds and grab our attentions when we hear this word. And for the most part, this is a crude association, but it, it, it's the closest you can get. When you talk about what Paul is talking about here, you're talking this pretty close to employment. We're talking about being a, being a worker. For Paul to have actually called himself a slave wouldn't have shocked anybody. It wouldn't have surprised anybody. It wouldn't have been demeaning in anybody's ears. What would have shocked them was who he said he was a slave to, when he said he was a slave to Christ. And so what he's talking about here when he's directing these slaves, he's, he's most resembling for us in the 21st century, those of us who, who go and have vocational employment elsewhere in, in the world, in offices, who work somewhere, who work in companies, who lead companies, who, who have a job. And here's what he's saying. It can be really brief. In the workplace, you're to display a life that enjoys grace and a character that displays grace. You are to work in such a way that you can be naturally trusted in everything that you do. You're not argumentative. You understand authority. You don't question every single thing your boss tells you to do. You don't become the rock and the shoe in your workplace. The one everybody wants to go around, the one nobody wants to deal with, the one nobody can get along with. You don't, that's not you. That's not displaying a heart that's being changed by the grace of God. You're not engaged in, in petty theft from your employer. You can be trusted with all things. You're not cutting corners to get around things. You're not taking things for yourself that aren't yours. You work in such a way that you, your heart displays a satisfaction in who God is for you. If you're an employee, you, you get this. These verses are easy. I don't know, take a lot of explanation. If you have a job, you, you understand what he's talking about. You don't take advantage of your employers. If you're a boss, you don't take advantage of your employees. You have a responsibility to act in a way that you can be trusted. You do this, and you live this way, and you work this way, not just so that other people will think you're a good worker, but because you know that all that you do, you're doing before your heavenly, heavenly, heavenly master. You're doing all of your work before the face of God. And so that compels you to work in a way that honors him and displays the trust and the grace that he's given you. And when you smash all those things together, a picture of leaders who teach and who model a life that is in step with the fruit of the gospel. Older men who are 
who are living a life that's contented by the grace of God and who are taking the responsibility to teach younger men to, to grow into the same maturity and older women whose, whose hearts have been so changed by the grace of God and they, they represent a reverence in their life before God and have passed by so many things that the younger women struggle with but they're taking that responsibility to help teach and model and encourage the younger women and then all of us go and men and women alike out into the city in the places where God has sent us into the, the offices and the schools and the workplaces and we live in such a way that we can be trusted because of who we are and what God's done. When that begins to happen, you get a snapshot of what the church is supposed to look like. What a church that's increasingly enjoying grace looks like and the most staggering thing, and we'll, we'll close with this this morning, the most staggering thing about all of it It's not just some of the things he says, but what happens when we begin to do that. If we actually believe what Paul is encouraging the church here to do, the staggering thing is what happens when we do it. I mean, look at what he says. He says, the word of God will not be reviled. In verse five, the word of God will not be reviled when our lives are lived in such a way that they display an enjoyment in the grace of God. The way we live affects the way that people around us understand the gospel. Our lives give credibility and testimony to the validity of the gospel. And when we live this way, when the vision that Paul is kind of casting here in Titus 2 begins to work its way into the life of a church and we begin to see this operating in the life of a church, people will see the grace of God and there will be credibility in it because our lives, our lives give testimony to the power of it. He says the gospel will actually be adorned. When we live this way, the gospel will actually be adorned. The gospel, some of your Bibles will say, will actually be beautified. I mean, think of all the ways that we try to make the gospel attractive to people. Think about it. I mean, if if you think about church stuff at all, which I don't know how many of you actually do, I think about it a lot. There are a million ways that you can be encouraged today to make the gospel attractive to people. I mean, the building you're in, the music you play, the kids program, the time of the sermon, the length of the sermon, the content of the sermon, the structure of the sermon, the way you handle parking, I mean, whatever. You're told a million things you can do so that people will like the gospel. If we actually believe the Bible, if we actually believe the Bible, Paul said that when we begin to live lives that enjoy grace, and the vision that he paints here begins to work its way through the life of the church, it's in that that the gospel will be beautified. That when men love their wives and children the way that Christ has loved the church, when they grow into a maturity and an honoring and a self-control and a responsibility for others, and women are finding their security and their contentment in the place where God has given them, and they're loving their families, and they're loving their husbands, and they're serving one another. They're growing into temple likeness, and we're out in the world that God has placed us serving and loving in such a way that reflects an enjoyment in his grace. The gospel and the life of others will be beautified. The question is, do we actually believe the Bible? Is that enough? Is that enough? Of all the things we chase to make the gospel palatable to our friends and neighbors, the way that you love each other, Paul says, is the most powerful evangelism program we've got. The way that you and your wife and your kids love one another, your home, is the most powerful witness to the credibility and the beauty of the gospel. The way you work, why you work, why you do what you do. 
So why do we believe it? Do we actually believe it? When you put it all together, it seems as though Paul is saying the gospel becomes most attractive as it's on display through men and women who are learning to serve others and not prioritize being served. If you put it all together as leaders are learning to serve and learning to sacrifice, as leaders are learning to serve the church that God has called them to, as men are learning to serve one another and serve and sacrifice in their homes and workplaces, not seeking for themselves their own desires, but embodying the sacrificial nature of Christ and as women are learning through grace how to serve one another and serve their families with the gift God's given them in their work and at home or in the office. And they do it with all diligence, knowing that it's God who they're serving and not man. As men and women begin to do that, learn to serve in humility. The gospel is beautified and critics are silenced. No need to argue. When we actually believe in such, we actually live in such a way that proclaims that we believe the things that we say, when our lives match what comes out of our mouths, critics are actually condemned in their own criticism because our lives are producing a credible reflection and a credible witness of the gospel. Do we actually believe that? Scripture says it's the way that the world sees us love one another that they'll begin to understand the love of God. It's the way the body loves one another. And let me say this as we close. Some people in here will not feel loved. I know that. I know we can talk about this in humility and service and love and gaining sense of responsibility for one another, and some people will say, I just don't feel it. I don't see it. I don't feel it played out. And let me say that. Let me say this. I know that. I know that. We're not in heaven yet. In no shape, way, shape, form, or fashion am I perfect, or is this church is perfect. But I can say the overwhelming testimony has been in the two years that God has graced us to be around that men and women have experienced and are experiencing the ongoing care and love and support and nurture of one another. God has chosen to display through the foolishness of our lives the beauty of his gospel as we learn to enjoy grace in ever-deepening measures. No man left behind. It's the vision for the life of the church. No man left behind. A healthy church is built on men and women who are increasing in their capacity to enjoy grace and are growing more intentional about helping one another do the same and thus reflect to a watching world a transformed life and a credible story of grace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace that has changed my heart and is changing my heart and is changing the hearts of men and women all over this room. Lord, I pray that we grow in our sense of responsibility for one another, that as we, as we grow to love your grace more and more, that that would compel us to want to see that same grace treasured in the hearts of other men and women around us. Lord, help us to feel responsible for one another and to move forward in that sense of responsibility. Let us be a church that looks like Titus 2. All the bells and whistles, all the other things, 
They're good. They're great. May we do them. God, let us be a church that reflects Titus 2. And when it comes down to it, our trust is in your word. Our trust is in the power of your gospel to be adorned through our lives. And help us to be men and women who, who pursue a godliness that comes from your grace with more vigor than we pursue a health that comes from physical exercise. I know how easy it is for me to prioritize that. Lord, what if we just prioritized our growth in grace the same way? Lord, help us to want to be a church that reflects this vision of the church. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that is at work in us, willing and acting for your good pleasure, conforming us into your image. That is where our hope lies. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.